Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. It is fantastic to have you back in 2024. I'm Bernard Hickey and uh, Peter Bale. Bernard, nice nice voiceover across Simon's carefully chosen groovy music with that that little sort of mysterious beginning is, you know, that's going to be on our album, I think. Yes, our album, our, our double live album. That's right. Yeah, perhaps not, perhaps not the, yeah. Just what yeah, people slightly need. Slightly warm August night. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, cheers to you and cheers to everyone um, here back for the Hoon for 2024. It's been a, a hot summer without too much rain, which is just fantastic. Well, it is now. Bernard, it wasn't it wasn't a hot summer for most of what we have called summer, yeah. and I'm very glad to have visited have visited your beautiful Waiheke Hoon Central abode, Kaka Central abode. Yeah, I am so loving being out and about. Uh, the birds, the actual Kaka in the morning, uh, diving in on the on the uh, recording of the dawn chorus occasionally. My aim is to swim at least twice a day. Um, and you've been I- doing three. Three is a good day. Mm. Yep. Um, so I'm very, very lucky. Well, I've been doing trying to do two tw- two swims a day too, Bernard, and I've been using Safe Swim, the the oh. Auckland app, which shows you where the where the poo is and where you are relative to to the poo. And rather oddly, one beach near me is off limits, but the nearest one to me is on limits. So I choose I choose to look at that one and pretend that that's the one that I'm actually <laughs> swimming in as the as as, uh, as opposed to the other one. But do you check I, your shark app as well? I don't check the shark app before I go out because it would make me never go in the water at all because um the shark app, which I've now seen has been featured quite heavily in various news reports, is extremely alarming when you see uh, Daisy, Mary Bell, and various other poorly named great whites um, <laughs> who are being tracked from Bowen Town, pretty much all around the North Island through the Haraki Gulf, and then I just do not want to think of them coming in under the under the bridge to have a little snack of my feet. No, I wonder if they are checking the Poo app too to see where they should be swimming. That's right. Whether That's it's right. safe. Yeah. Well, I was I was looking out the other day, and it was quite extraordinary. There was a you know a workup of fish and seabirds just outside my place. And uh, I, I texted my neighbour to say it was dolphins. And of course it wasn't. It was just kawai, but a lot of them. And they were <laughs> oh. very large. They were very large, so I have oh. an excuse. Yeah. No, it's been a, a quite a summer. And actually I've got a, an interview that comes out tomorrow on When the Facts Change via the spinoff with Gillian Blythe from Water New Zealand, in mm-hmm. which we talk about fatbergs and the awful oh. state of our water networks. Yeah. Um, and of course, Wellington right now, despite having the second wettest year on record, 2023, following this, the wettest year on record, 2022, and all of its dams are full, but still it doesn't have enough water because it hasn't built enough storage and 45% of the water leaks through all the leaks. Well, which is, which is even even by the standards of the UK places where, I, where I've been in the past, 40, 46% of it does see... I was trying to, you know, I was thinking about, you know, going and getting my, my tap and using a sieve rather than a um, colander. And that would be basically what's going on. But I also thought about you just as I was driving home from the beach today, Bernard, pulled up next to, and I'm now feeling really bad that I didn't take a picture of it. In fact, I might go out after this is over and see if he's still there. But there was a uh, a plumber repair chap whose, whose business was called Three Waters. 
I thought either that's going to be brilliant or he's or he's he's starting to wonder why he's got hate mail. And I wonder what his um his business partner, who no doubt is his wife or 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 the likes, um thinks of co-governance. Um Mm. no, good fun. And um the other thing I've loved about this summer is the cricket. So um as a kid I used to play Is there cricket on? Oh well there has been quite a bit recently Mm -hmm. and I've really enjoyed watching bits of it and highlights and things. And my favourite moment of the summer was this extraordinary screenshot. Some, you know, sometimes the TV cameras cut to the crowd mm. and you see something in your crowd and you think, wow, that's amazing. Well, this time it was New Zealand playing Pakistan at Eden Park and a Pakistani batsman had just hit this amazing six into the crowd. Mm-hmm. And they cut to a section of the audience who were clearly uh, uh, refugee residents in Auckland from Pakistan or Afghanistan uh, or India uh, who were big fans of the Pakistan team. Do you think Indian people would be big fans of the, well, of the Pakistan team? part of India. You're probably right, right okay, though. Yes. There, there is an element of, you know, uh, we're, we're for everyone except Australia or England. <laughs> Um, you, you can get that T-shirt out at the airport. Actually, oh, I, I have no, you know, I support I support New Zealand or anybody who's playing against Australia. So yeah, I, I wouldn't be seen dead in it. But yeah. So the camera cuts to the crowd, and there is this amazing young uh, family, all in the headscarves and the full uh, hijab, and these teenage girls and a, a young couple uh, from the same family, absolutely beside themselves with joy, jumping up and down. And Did the they stands. catch the ball? No, they didn't. They were just thrilled that a six had been <laughs> struck by the Pakistani batsman. And all around them, the New Zealand audience were thrilled as well. And I must say, it made my heart sing to see how New Zealand sometimes does quite well at, at integrating and accepting and, and helping Yeah, I thought from... that today too, Bernard, in a, in a slightly mushy, let's all start the year on a positive note, because by the time we finish with Robert Patman, we'll all be you know issuing Kaka-branded Kaka razor blades to our uh, to our audience. But I, I, I did a thing today of hanging out with some refugee people, um, young people, and at a beach. And it's a beach that already is kind of famous in Auckland for its incredible diversity and the way mm. the whole community in the area piles in and, you know, does whatever they need to do on the beach um, in the nicest possible way. And just watching, you know, girls mm-hmm. with hijab paddling about on my stand-up paddleboard, unable to swim, but having an absolutely oh, yeah. brilliant, brilliant time and, you know, lots of, um, you know, boys, girls, everybody, and also the way they interacted to, to a huge extent with uh, the, the rest of that kind of yeah. village. Um, yeah. Was a very was a very positive thing to see, given the negativity that I yeah. sense sometimes by reading the wrong social, staying on the wrong social networks and reading yes. the wrong newspapers. That's right. There's nothing better than you know watching your kids and lots of other kids at the beach having a ball. And, That's right. Um, now, Bernard, you've you've speaking of speaking of um, the wrong social network or the wrong network to be in. You've been dealing with a real dilemma that um, mm, yeah. I mean, first we should say how. I mean, like I, I have genuinely missed, missed Simon, our um, lovely producer, and I've also missed the podcast. And I, I kind of have missed our audience, um, despite the odd little slur that um, someone's flipped my way again. With, as you say, never, never look at the comments. But you've been dealing with a kind of really interesting dilemma mm-hmm. with Substack, the platform on which you publish the Kaka and which I publish my seldom updated newsletter, because they've not really done enough, as far as you're concerned, to combat the odd and obscure Nazi um, 
sympathizer. Mm, I certainly would love Substack to do more and to be um, more uh, out there and open about what they do do to stop those publishers making credible threats of violence. And I, I do feel uncomfortable um, being on a platform, although albeit one where the articles and podcasts are not typically uh, put in front of our audience, but uh, a platform that um, does allow people with extremist views, anti-vaxxers, far right, far left, um, various sympathetic people to all sorts of nasty causes. And of course, this all started the end of last year, and I tried to have a holiday for most of that time, but it's, it's cropped up and many of our subscribers Ask the question, and it's a fair question, are you going to stay on this on platform mm. when there are groups who are professing to be Nazi or Nazi adjacent? And after investigating the scale of um, the issue and uh, how much money, if you like, Substack is making from, from this, I decided to stay with Substack, and there's a bunch of reasons for it. And I, I wouldn't say I'm totally comfortable but it is clear, I think, that I can do more good here than elsewhere. And I do it because I have some experience and I, I'm really lucky to rely on, on your experience, uh, Peter. We've both rolled out editorial platforms and social network adjacent publishing systems all around the world over 20 or 30 years. Mm. And um, it's hard. I mean, it is really hard. Uh, yeah, my Third Reich one is just booming now. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Boone. <laughs> um, it is it is really hard to get it right, and uh, Substack uh, have taken an approach which is hands off on the moderation front, uh, but to give lots of control to the publishers and to not bring in advertising. And on balance, compared to the likes of X and Facebook, uh, Instagram, and many others, uh, I think uh, Substack is a better environment, and also not, not just for readers, but also for publishers in terms of making it a viable operation. Yeah. Yeah. I think, Bernard, it's very important that we, I mean, I, even though they've done various things like notes and so on, it is very important to consider, to, to consider them as they consider themselves, which is a desirable place to be, to be a publishing platform, not a publisher itself. And mm -hmm. of course, they've merged that as a as a friend of mine, Benedict Evans, who you know, the, the tech analyst said, you know, they've been rather um, sanctimonious about this, but... Um, you know, all of all platforms have a really difficult situation here. Substack has been a bit sanctimonious and has also morphed into various things that it might want to be reconsidered. But you you do you do have the slight opportunity to um, to actually say to Hamish McKenzie, who is a New Zealander, who's one of the founders of Substack, I am concerned. You know, yeah. and I want to know what you're doing. Yeah, which is a, which is a great asset. Yeah, and that's something I'll be able to continue doing. And um, they are obviously aware of it and and working on it. And uh, we hope that they find a way through. It is tough though. There's a spectrum between hands off and hands on, and being a publisher and being a platform. And uh, in in my view, I think we can do more good and. Uh, be a friendlier, more constructive community on Substack than off it. Yeah, I think actually, Bernard, one of the things that you should take a great credit from is that people asked you about it because I think one of one of Substack's responses, which I think is um, what we in the profession call bullshit, but I understand where it comes from, which is the idea that good conversation will will drown out bad conversation, and mm. we know from Godwin's law, the currency the currency problem. 
that you know bad money will always drive out good and uh i'm afraid that people who want to have a shitty conversation will always contaminate good conversations and you you it's a great credit to your audience that they're concerned about this and that you're going to maintain it because uh and and you know maintain a look at it because in in my experience at the moment the more conversation does not drown it out and we but but as i said to you in a in a note and a conversation over summer we are living in a first amendment world and covered by section 230 of the us communications act um which you know means that we we're, we're not really living in a in an area that's that's kind of regulated or measured by our own standards or our own legal standards which we relish in certain circumstances but then it comes back to bite us and others. Yeah, I'm not complacent on this, and I'm no free speech absolutist. Uh, I've received death threats too, and so have my friends and me. colleagues. No, only, no, no, well, no. only okay, only when you're late. <laughs> no, I could bloody kill that Bernard Hickey. Does not constitute a death threat. <laughs> no, but unfortunately, um, colleagues of mine and employees and uh, others that I know have from this particular strain of. Uh, um, activism awfulness and uh, yeah no I, there's a fight we're going to have yeah, to fight it's people's readiness to have a have a stoush hmm. that is actually we should have we should possibly have a stoush corner speaking of which there's Catherine God, I... from her from her northern eerie she's either got horns or a very elegant chair isn't it <laughs> my throne <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> lovely to see you Catherine and uh, from the winterless north um, or the permanently summery north uh great to see you um unfortunately hotness is something that we've gotten very Steady. familiar with no no warmness temperature it's got <laughs> something we've got very familiar with in 2023 tell us about the uh, records we broke and the summary of 2023 yeah, I mean, I think everybody knows it was a hooer of a year when it comes to the climate and the temperature. So the um, Barclay data set, they said it was 1.54 degrees Celsius, I think, above the pre-industrial era. So it was certainly, it was huge. And it, and it wasn't just... Um, it was unexpectedly big, you know, because mm. the, the none of the none of the people running those data sets expected that and their forecasts for the year were considerably lower. And even though they knew an El Nino was coming, um, usually it's hotter in the second year, not on the first year, and you kind of had an El Nino for the first half of the year, so you'd expect that to balance things a bit. And so they've been looking at it going, well, we don't, we don't really know what happened here. You know, there's a few possible explanations that include things like, you know, man-made global warming, El Nino, La Nina. We had a solar maximum, so the solar cycle is at a maximum. You had the Hunga Tonga volcano eruption, mm -hmm. and we also had that reduction in marine fuel pollution mm. that um, reduced, you know. But when you take all of those things and you split them up and you look at them all and analyse them, it still doesn't explain mm -hmm. how big 2023 was. So, you know, there's still a debate going on there. There's some people that are saying, well, there's, there's natural variation as well, and it just might be that. Which is which it could be, but then you've also got James Hansen's paper, and mm. he's saying that 2023 was completely in line with what his paper suggests mm. we would expect, and he's also made some predictions for next year's temperature, which are again a lot higher than what the big global data sets are saying is going to happen. So it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, it still won't be definitive. I think it's going to be years before we know, you know, what 
what all the drivers were for the temperature in 2023 and before we have any kind of consensus around, you know, is the warming accelerating or, you know, has there been some kind of tipping point that we haven't kind of... Mm. Yeah, tipping, tipping points in retrospect are a little bit... Um... Tough. Redundant. Yeah. You know, nice to nice to find them, and you probably get a Nobel Prize for finding it, but Too anticipating them might be a little wiser. <laughs> yeah. I wonder, Catherine, whether um, 1.5 degrees, which was seen as the threshold beyond which it's dangerous to test these tipping points, uh, and the idea was we weren't going to get there until 2030s or so. It looks like we're almost there. Well, we, um, we still won't get there properly until the 2030s or so because it's it doesn't – it's not – just a single year when you've got El Nino mm. and all sorts of other things affecting it, it has to be um, consistent and sustained. And and that probably means over 20 years or so. So it's still looking to be early 2030 at this stage before we seriously hit it, although Hansen suggests earlier than that. But, mm. you know, mm. that's yet to be seen. I mean, it still could come down in the next couple of years quite sharply as well. But even then, humans seem unable, reluctant to take the, you know, quite urgent, tough action to, to reduce emissions, full stop, um, that we know is, is needed. What's going on with our brains and our genetics, which mean we seem to have a death wish here? Yeah, well, there was this paper that just came out from University of Maine, which is really mm. interesting. And they're basically saying, well, we may, humans may be evolutionarily unfit to deal with this kind of problem. And quite a, you know, we can we can solve environmental problems at a certain level, at a kind of tr almost tribal group level, I guess. Um, we're not very good at solving them at the scale and size that we've got for climate change. And we're also not very good at solving them before they cause big issues or mm. some kind of collapse. And, and of course, our problems now are global. So waiting till we collapse to try and seriously address it is um, mm. obviously highly problematic. So one of the things I'm saying out of that and what that paper is saying is we desperately need more research that's looking at human uh, cultural evolutionary, human behaviour, all of those sort of things, because we have all the technology already we need and we always have to actually address climate change. It's the fact that we're not deploying it at scale or it's not effective against the particular drivers that are driving this, you know, and, and yet we still keep pouring all our research money into new technological solutions and, and we haven't figured out what are the human drivers, what are the cultural evolutionary traits, you know, even if we have those technological solutions, are we actually going to apply them in, in any sense proportionate to mm, the issue? Yeah. Um, so we really need some research money going into those kind of social science type research um, and not all on STEM is what I would say. That's, yeah, I mean, this, this, <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that issue of the what I call the political economy. And most certainly not journalism. Yeah. No. Well, <laughs> well, yeah. It, it yeah. is an interesting problem. You know, we can we can throw facts at things until the cows come home, but if people have a frame in their heads which says this is the way the world works and everything you throw against it just makes it stronger, it is really tough to think about how, how do you change people's minds when their minds are hardened. Yeah, it's impossible to get good policy that will really be effective at scale if you don't understand what is going to drive human behavioural changes, you know, so. 
Yeah, no, it's a, a fascinating problem, which we're uh, fully focused on here at at um, the Kaka, which is all Wait, about... Just what, Catherine, let me, let me ask you, before we we, mm. we go into international affairs and the, and the miserable standard of that, although Robert looks like he's had a fantastic swim today already, judging by his hair, um, <laughs> which we all have, which is... Which I, I have, have you swimming have, here too. Yeah, I know, you always do, Brenna, <laughs> uh, at the best of times, even when you haven't been swimming, you've got swimming here. Um Catherine, where's leadership coming from at the moment? Because when I when I look at this in New Zealand as well, there is no leadership about this. It is it's all a market driven thing. Or you know, wh- where's leadership coming from right now? Whether it's in New Zealand or in internationally on climate. I actually think that if if there is going to be any social tipping point and any big changes, it's it's coming from the bottom up. It's coming from grassroots level up. So I think you know, there's a lot of evidence that people. They have a certain awareness of the troubles that we're going, you know, the the issues that we're facing Mm -hmm. and and what's likely to happen. And I think that there's a lot of people working at local levels to do things locally to improve their resilience and to, you know, and I think eventually you'll, if things are going to change, it's going to come from the bottom up. That's my opinion. And um, in a way, sadly, that that takes too long. This is the problem with, um, you know, bottom up, waiting for the young to change our politics in our minds is by the time the young get become cabinet ministers at the moment. Christ. It, Simeon are you thinking about Simeon Brown again? Oh, Simeon Brown. So if that's the shape of the if that's if that's the shape of young people today, then I'm not uh, bloody no. gonna hand over to the young people, I can tell you. <laughs> Transport and Auckland minister Simeon Brown, comma, twenty two, comma, mm. uh, this week announced uh, a set of changes to the road user charges regime, which effectively punishes people with electric vehicles because per kilogram per kilometre, they are paying twice as much to repair the roads as SUVs and twice as much compared to more efficient petrol cars. Oh, I know, but we, but, but, but Bernard, what about the ute tax? He's repealed the ute tax, you know? Yeah, but not only has he done that, he's doubled down by punishing those people with electric vehicles. It's not this, you know, we're getting... Do we know anybody on this call who's just bought an electric vehicle on a small island off Auckland where he's now going to be charged hundreds of thousands of dollars a year for driving around? No, no. Luckily for me, I'm not travelling too far. So um, my road user charges won't be too high. I do have an electric vehicle and is the best purchase ever after the electric bike I bought, um, which I use all, all the time. Okay. You need to get one, Peter. I've got a good one I could sell you. Okay, I'm going out to get another bloody double, another double cab ute. Catherine, thank you very much for being on. It's lovely to see you. Great. See you all later. Thank you. Thank see you, you, Catherine. <laughs> Ciao. And Robert, welcome, welcome in from the from the sunny south. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I'm in Lake Kalweer, and um, it's, it's beautiful at the moment. Is there any water in it? Because I, I was think I was wondering if it's got a. Yeah, no, I, you're absolutely right. I've just been swimming. I, about <laughs> half an hour came in from the lake. So great because I was wondering if it had the problem that Lake Titicaca has got at the moment of, of being more Titicaca and a lot less lake right now. No, no, it looks in in very good shape at the moment. The water's beautiful. It's a bit bracing when you get in, but within a minute or so, it's you... not as you say to your children. I'm sure it's lovely when you get in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's just getting through that initial uh, minute of cold shock. And speaking of which, when we when we dive into international affairs, um, Robert, Good I was I was really struck by the slightly arrogant but very clever Ian Bremer from Eurasia yep. Group, listing as his number one risk this year being America against itself. But by, by which he means, as as he says, in fact, having two essentially 
inappropriate and unelectable presidential candidates, one of whom is Donald Trump. Um, how are you feeling coming into into twenty twenty four? Apart from, you know, now that now that uh, I'm I presume one of your children has made you a delicious gin and tonic like Bernard's to um, <laughs> keep you going. Well, we're working on that. They're not as quite as well house trained as I would like, actually. But that's another story. <laughs> um, kids seem to take long to grow up these days, don't they? <laughs> uh, with regard to Ian Bremner's comment, um, he's not the only one, of course, who's saying that. But I think from Viewed from outside the United States, the perspective may be even more alarming. Mr. Biden, who seemed to be a relatively safe pair of hands after the tumultuous Trump administration, where Mr. Trump struggled for any coherence on foreign policy and therefore unsettled a lot of liberal democratic allies. Mr. Biden, he's in many respects, his handling of the Gaza crisis has been almost a textbook example of how not to handle a crisis. And I think that has severely shaken confidence amongst young people uh, in the United States who might otherwise be enthusiastically endorsing the Democrats. Mm. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, it, Mr. Trump, as we know, has just sailed through the first Iowa caucus and um, his rivals, uh, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, between them got about 40% of the vote cast, but Mr. Trump sailed through with 51%. Mm. So. And Ramaswani, the the other candidate, pro-Trump, has now dropped out and declared his support for Trump. So he'd make an excellent vice president, though, because because he's so bonkers, he'd make the president look sane. Yeah, well, he one thing for if it was Trump and uh, Ramaswamy, then I think Mr. Slensky would be really really worried. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, look, I think there's a more serious aspect here, not just on the details of the candidates. The worrying thing, even under a Biden administration. America has been complicit in a big way in the breaking of humanitarian law in the Middle mm. East. Mm. Still to be adjudicated, but yes. Well, the thing is, at the moment, Mr. Biden finds himself in the situation where he's appealing. In, in fact, his stance in hitting the Houthis through airstrikes, with, along with the loyal British, is to uphold the rule of law. And supported and supported by, by Wellington. Yes, despite the fact that Wellington twice voted in the General Assembly for an immediate humanitarian truce. Mm -hmm. So they're now, having voted for a truce, which was rejected by Washington, the country which rejected um, New Zealand's diplomatic stance, uh, Wellington is now supporting it using force. So it's an interesting um, you know, situation. Uh, I'm not sure the government has thought this through, but that remains to be seen. But coming back to the United States, I mean, I think what we can say, Peter, is that Unfortunately, since the crisis of the 7th of October after the horrendous Hamas terror attack, the United States has effectively confirmed that its appeal globally, and not least to other liberal democracies, is in sharp decline. Mm. Despite the loyalty of the Brits and the Germans, their population doesn't seem to share the views of their government no. on a no. crucial global issue. Yeah, the hug. The hug. I, I wrote about this today for the spinoff, and the you know the hug, the hug BB strategy is is like that thing about how porcupine, porcupines make love, you know, which is very carefully. And um, I'm afraid, you know, Biden is looking like a pincushion now, you know, because it, it just uh, Robert. You, one of the things you were referring to, and I, I wrote a little bit about, and I, I'd like to go into a little bit, is the um, South African um, submission to the International Court mm. of Justice about. Uh, 
calling calling what Israel is doing, uh, saying it's been done with genocidal intent. Yes. And one of the things that's, well, one of the many things that stri- strikes me about that is the extraordinary, irony is not a good enough word, but ambiguity, weirdness of a country that was literally created out of the Holocaust, which is where the word genocide was, what, what the word genocide was actually created for, and the law was certainly created for, mm. is now finds itself in an international court charged with genocidal acts. I mean, interestingly, of course, Israel is not a signatory to the ICJ, mm. but it has mounted a really extraordinary, you know, and potentially very powerful defense. What, what do you think about that South African case? Well, I think the South African case reflects the fact that great powers are losing control of the narrative in international politics in the 21st century. I think it was a shock, not just to Israel, but to the United States that South Africa would do this. Now, you could say, with some justification, South Africa hasn't exactly got consistency on this issue Mm -hmm. because, after all, they remain silent and even supportive of Mr. Putin's blatantly illegal invasion of Ukraine. But clearly, the black majority government in South Africa uh, empathises with the plight of the Palestinians, which they see as under occupation, has been under occupation, according to international law. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think a few chickens have come home to roost in the last few weeks. Not Not in Gaza, they haven't. There's there's nothing to roost in. No, well, I'm talking Mm. metaphorically. (laughs) You're absolutely right. Empirically, you're bang on. Um, But... um, America for a long time has publicly protested, successive presidents since Mm. Clinton have publicly protested against illegal settlements by Israel, but has Mm. done nothing to enforce their opposition to those settlements. Instead, they've continued to provide what is now 3.8 billion every year in support. So Israel basically um, does not take the United States seriously and I, you know, when it comes to America imposing its agenda, what really strikes me about this crisis is the extent to which the tail has wagged the dog mm. in this situation. Yeah, they're not so much, he's not so much thumbing his nose as just putting up a single finger. No. Yeah. I mean, he basically rubbished uh, Mr. Blinken's statement that there must be a two, two state solution. In, in the weekend, extraordinary statement, weekend of 16th and 17th of December, Mr. Netanyahu publicly took pride in the fact that he had done more than any other politician to deny the Palestinians a state for the last 30 years. And yet America sees fit to have his back and give him unconditional support. This is an extraordinary situation, Robert. Let me let me ask you a question about the New Zealand, if you don't mind. This, this, sure. Bernard and I were talking before you came on about whether whether New Zealand is the new France, um, and that you know, like France does in August, New Zealand just goes to sleep over Christmas and the New Year, and just does. You know, it used it used to be child abuse and car accidents were the only thing in the papers, and now it's child abuse, car accidents, and shark attacks, but and house prices. But um, I don't know what New Zealand's position is on the South African genocide application. I do know that New Zealand is one of only 10 countries to support officially the US and um, yeah. British strikes on the Houthis. Yeah. Do you think we should know what, what New Zealand's position is or if it has a position on that? I think we should. And I think this government needs to, and I've said this publicly and in writing, this government needs to call upon the, the Biden administration to think again mm-hmm. about its continuous policy because... At the moment in Washington, there seems to be 
a confusion between the effects of the Gaza crisis and its causes. And what I mean by that is, at the moment, the Biden administration is very preoccupied with preventing escalation. Mm. But, the, you know, and, and in a sense, they, they, they justify using force against the Houthis, who, by the way, have said they would stop any interference with shipping as soon as the Gaza ceasefire kicks in. And then and then devote themselves to slavery to slavery. Oh, yeah, and, I, uh, I have no, I'm not, <laughs> the Houthis and the Iranian hackers are yeah. fully exploiting the failure of the United States to listen to the rest of the international community to bring about a ceasefire. In a sense, the United States has given Iran and its Houthi allies and Hezbollah leverage they shouldn't have. And it's interesting that, um, you know, in those first few months of the conflict, there was this concern that there would be a, an escalation, a spread around the Middle East, which um, made it a lot worse. And initially there wasn't. People were restrained. But uh, because of, as you say, giving more leverage to the Houthis and uh, seeing the results of the Houthis using the Red Sea shipping choke point as a, another piece of leverage, suddenly uh, America and the global economy has this economic problem, which is that one of the main shipping routes between Europe and uh, Asia uh, is now locked off, particularly for containers and for oil, to the point where the insurers, the reinsurers for the shipping industry have said, we won't let you go through there. Mm. And it's now starting to become an economic issue where perhaps uh, if the United States had taken a different approach last year, it may not start to flow mm. through. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And um, it is a serious situation and it, and there's a real potential for Iran and its so-called axis of resistance, Hezbollah, uh, the Houthis, amongst others, to take full advantage. You know, it's not as if Iran or the Houthis are desperately concerned about the welfare of the Palestinians, but they are happy to take advantage. Mm. And I think what is really, truly sobering for many liberal people within liberal democracies is the United States the five visits that Mr. Blinken has made to Israel and a number of Arab states, and each time he's calling for restraint and de-escalation, but this doesn't prevent the United States giving tremendous aid and support to Israel. And there seems in the American mind to be no connection between regional anger what's going on in Gaza and American actions. And it, it's almost if, you know, the, the, the recent actions against the Houthis is that America is trying to have its cake and eat it. Mm. On the one hand, it's, provide, it, it's being a loyal ally to Israel. On the other hand, it's attempting to contain the regional blowback that's it's occurring. And I, I, I think, you know, coming back to the New Zealand dimension, we, as a loyal ally and friend of the United States, are not doing any favours by remaining silent on this issue because the United States' global reputation is being effectively undermined by its current stance. 
um, one of the other things that happened, of course, was the was the election of a new Taiwanese president from the same party, um, which is which is not at all keen. In fact, literally hostile to um, a Chinese takeover. It always amazes me, of course, to think about Taiwan and still having the the Kuomintang of um, Chiang Kai Shek as the second as the second greatest party in Taiwan. Um, what do you make of the Taiwan elections? The implications for us of that? The fact that China has been verbally bellicose, but so far in no other way. And then there's this weird little Nauru twist where Nauru has mm. dropped its recognition of Taipei. Well, I think the China warned uh, voters in Taiwan not to vote for the ruling DDP, now led by um, the new president when he's inaugurated on the 20th of May will be William Lai, as you indicated. The Chinese must, in a, in a sense, have been rebuffed by the Taiwanese voters. And the other thing to note here is all the three parties, although they have different degrees of emphasis about the relationship with China, all reject the idea of Chinese rule, mm. whether it be the Taiwan People Party or the KMT or ZTP, the ruling party. They've won the third consecutive term. Of the presidency, not of parliament. I think that's quite kind of yeah, important. Yeah. That you... yeah, their vote has actually gone down. Yeah from 50% to 40%. So they've lost control, as I understand it, Peter, of the parliament. But uh, nevertheless, given the efforts that China put in to influence the election, it must be seen as a bit of a rebuff. What does mm. that mean in the short term? I think it probably means quite chilly relations. Uh, China's already moved some um, naval capabilities closer to Taiwan. Um, I don't think much will be done before the inauguration of the 20th of May. In the longer term, however, China, I think, realises the diplomatic option of peaceful reunification with Taiwan is off the table. It can use force to bring about uh, reunification between Taiwan and China, but that's a very costly option, not least because several factors here. Firstly, China needs a more constructive relationship with the US, and since November, that's been happening. Um, so that would any attempt to use force against Taiwan following the election would seriously disturb the relationship with the United States. And the Biden administration, while it's in office, has said it would use force in support of Taiwan's elected government should it be attacked by China. The second factor here is China may be frustrated by what's happened, but I think the forces urging restraint on the Chinese leadership far outweigh those suggesting belligerence. Mm, and mm. the reason I say that is because China remains economically dependent on the US market, EU market, and Japan. And these are the three biggest export markets for the Chinese leadership. Would they seriously jeopardize those by going on a military adventure, which, by the way, would not be assured of immediate success? Mm. So I, I think overall, to sum up to, in response to your question, in the short term, I think relations between the new re-elected government uh, in Taiwan will be chilly with China. In the longer term, I think the message is the only way China can bring about, fulfill its narrative of bringing Taiwan back to the motherland is going to be through force. And I think increasingly that is a very unlikely prospect. 
Just wondering, though, about um, the Pacific in this and Nauru's decision this week to jump ship, if you like, to move its diplomatic allegiance to China from Taiwan. What do you think's going on here? And, you know, why should people in Australia and New Zealand care? Well, I think there's only three Pacific, correct me if I'm wrong, Bernard, but I mm. think there's only about three Pacific Island states now which actually have diplomatic relations with Taiwan. So China has made considerable progress in extending. We we had those big moves by Kiribati and also the Solomons in 2019, switching diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to China. And now Nauru has followed suit. I think, by the way, I think Nauru has actually gone backwards and forwards mm. about three times. Yeah between Taiwan and China. I think, obviously, the Chinese leadership will be gratified that their efforts to win friends and influence in the Pacific Islands region has paid off. The other thing here to keep in mind is that Nairu would say, well, look, the United States doesn't recognize that Taiwan is an independent state, so why should we in the Pacific mm-hmm. Islands states mm-hmm. stand on ceremony here? And obviously, China has some economic largesse and support to offer. So... What's interesting here, too, is that Australia, which has used Nauru to house its uh, unwanted refugees, uh, according to Taiwan, had not paid the bill. And uh, Nauru had gone to Taiwan asking for some money to um, account for the Australians not paying. Now, the Australians deny this. But you can see why some parts of the Pacific don't feel completely thrilled with the Western alliance, so to speak, of Australia and, and the US, when, um, you know, what's happened in Nauru with those refugee centres is not, not, all, not fantastic. Absolutely. And the other thing is, and I think this is a growing point, a point that emerges from the observation you just made, uh, many Pacific Island states feel that Australia and New Zealand sometimes has a one-way interpretation of the strength of the relationship the relationship is like a transmission belt. It flows from Australia and New Zealand to the Pacific Island states, but not vice versa. And I think while, uh, for example, our new defence minister, Judith Collins, and Mr Peters, the new foreign minister, have been making enthusiastic noises about exploring Pillar 2 of Orcas, I'm not sure that's gone down particularly well Mm. with many Pacific Island states which see that as a breach of the Treaty of Rarotonga. And by the way, they say they haven't been consulted Mm. about uh, this potential move. But Jerry Brownlee went and got the shirt. You know, he went to the the Pacific Forum. He's got the shirt. You know, it's a large tent we're all under, which is Jerry Brownlee's shirt. (laughs) That's right. Uh, No, that's at XXXXXL. Uh, Robert, what did you um, think, uh, too, of the comments in the last three or four weeks from Judith Collins, and the Prime Minister, when he visited Australia, very pro-American and seemingly at odds with the sort of pro-China comments that we saw before the election and that we've also seen from the former National Prime Minister, John Key, over the years. Has there been a shift in tone that that maybe um, the Chinese might not like? I think there's been a shift in tone, but it's early days yet. And I think one of the things many governments enter a learning process, particularly in foreign affairs. And I would not be surprised about these early positive noises. I mean, let's be quite clear. The new government inherited a very strong relationship between New Zealand and the US. The relationship's probably in better shape 
that any time that any previous government's come to power since before the 1985 rift mm. over New Zealand's non-nuclear stance. So all this nonsense that, that we've heard, oh, we've got to get this relationship back on track, it was already well and truly on track. And in part, in part because of the, the now foreign minister's actions when he was last time foreign minister yeah. in the Labour government. Also because the Biden administration went out of its way to praise New Zealand on a whole host of fronts and saw Jacinda Ardern as one a very influential young world leader. I, I think there may be some real tensions developing in the next year between Mr. Peters and Mr. Luxon on the Chinese issue. And also, I think Mr. Luxon will come under pressure from his caucus not to be a, a, bit, a bit player in foreign affairs. But uh, Mr. Peters has strong views and he has experience and he's been quite accomplished, to be fair. Do we know, do we know what Winston Peters thinks about Israel? I mean, not just this. I mean, is is he uh, an Israel right or wrong man? No, I think he's been quite measured. He's used his usual refrain of "we've got to get all the facts." It's very interesting. You know, you can only judge a government by the way it basically votes in in the UN General mm. Assembly and other forums. And so far, uh, on the twenty seventh of October, we voted to the surprise of the other Five Eyes members. Exactly. I just wondered whether there might have been some sort of, you know, Labour stooge doing that. I don't think diplomats can take their instructions from a Labour stew <laughs> from an outgoing government, but I may be wrong there, but I don't think so. Um, you know, I, I think they're trying to have both a very constructive relationship with the United States, but also supporting the rules-based order. But that is where I think they're facing real problems at the moment, because one thing that's complicated Mr. Luxon's leadership is the arrival of Mr. Peters, mm. the fact they've had to rely on New Zealand First. And I think New Zealand First does have a less nuanced view on the relationship between uh, our relationship between US, uh, between US and China. So, I, I, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how this falls out. I, you know, Mr. Peters always, you know, judging by the past, he's always been quite measured and nuanced in foreign mm -hmm. policy and um, careful in his dealings with China, respectful, and also but clear that China had a very different political system and there were limits outside the economic realm how far that relationship can go. Um, I, I just think that may not sit well with some of the national leaders. Hmm. It's interesting, actually, just in the last hour while we've been speaking, Christopher Luxon has come out and made his first comments uh, on the issue of uh, against Israel. He's been relatively nuanced uh, in the reported comments that I've seen, saying that Israel has a right to defend itself but must be compliant with international law and that New Zealand is watching the case at the International Court of Justice closely and Israel should be completely compliant with international law. So I think Good they're words. being... Good words. That's not a... I mean, it's slightly bob each way, but that's not too bad, is it, Robert? You know, saying that, you know, reminding Israel that it needs to be compliant? He could have said that Israel has exceeded the right of self-defence. The right mm -hmm. of self-defence is not limitless. If a state abuses the right of self-defence to target people who had nothing to do with the original incident that sparked the response, mm. which was the... Hamas, the appalling Hamas attack on 7th of October, well, we now have a situation where close to 24,000 Palestinians are dead. 
and these are civilians, and more than 10,600 children have been killed by the Israeli intensive bombardment or their ground offensive. So uh, that, to most people, seems to be a disproportionate response. And it's quite clear the laws of war and the humanitarian law in particular have not been respected. The, the thing that's disappointing is that the United States hasn't spoken out about the fact that humanitarian law hasn't been respected. And many other countries, including our own, has not been as vocal as some expected us to be globally. And that, that's a disappointment. Robert, thank you so much. I think we need to... So my girlfriend's daughter bought her a uh, cocktail-making set for Christmas, but without, I think, the, the ingredients. I think we need to go and get your kids to get hold of the ingredients so they can look after their father properly. <laughs> Robert, it's wonderful to see you. Thank you very much. Happy New Year. I'm glad you're getting getting uh, some frosty swims. And we look forward to talking to you again next week because there's no shortage of foreign affairs. And, and as soon as you're actually out of periodic detention, that'll be great. <laughs> All the best. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. So, Bernard, do you, you, do you want to talk about domestic domestic politics briefly? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wanted to talk about. Uh, you talked about the, how long we've had three or four weeks now without much discussion from our leaders about what's happening in the world, let alone what's happening here. Particularly because when the new government was elected under Christopher Luxon, he made a lot of noise about here how he and his new government in their first 100 days was not going to muck around over summer having a big long holiday. They were going to come back earlier than Labor. They were going to have early yeah, cabinet right. meetings. They were going to get parliament going early. Actually, when you look at what they're doing, um, for the first time today, we're starting to hear the prime minister. It's January the 18th, and we're not going to have a cabinet meeting until next week. We're not going to start a parliament until pretty much the same time as it always has. So the government's hustle-hustle uh, um, commentary of last year has seems to have drained away into the sand of summer. And um, it's good that uh, Christopher Luxon is now out there talking about things like, you know, what is our view on the Middle East and uh, what's happening with the economy. But... Um, but what, how do you think they've done, though? I mean, there's been, I, I was quite struck with that Simeon Brown an announcement about light rail the other day that, and I think it was badly reported in some respects about being a, you know, national lead, living up to its 100-day commitment as opposed, you know, whether it's right or wrong to close it, it was sort of pitched as, oh, they're doing, they're, they're taking action. How are they doing against their 100-day commitments? Well, um, they've still got a lot of legislative work to do, particularly around uh, Three Waters and the RMA. They obviously, in that first period, did a bunch of things, some of which they hadn't told us about or we weren't, we didn't really have a debate before the election. For example, the issue around smoke-free and certainly the debates around fair pay, um, the stripping of inland revenues' um, right to ask rich people how much money they had, uh, those sorts of things. Um, but also on the economy... Do they have that you know, right, Bernard? The... I'm definitely not going to... I'm definitely voting national now. <laughs> Jesus, carry on. <laughs> well, the, the previous government gave the IRD some rights to actually investigate how wealthy our wealthiest are, and they did that in a big study which showed that they are incredibly wealthy, and they don't pay much tax on that wealth. They could just pop down to West Haven and see that. Uh, well, yeah, no, a quick drive over the motorway and looking right. Or, or to the island that you live on. Oh, 
well, not my particular art. I you are a neighbour. You are a neighbour. You know, literally of Christopher Luxon's. Uh, interestingly, one of the biggest one of the biggest facilities in the main shopping centre is MSD. And there's an interesting contrast between the very wealthy and the not so wealthy. And uh, I'm enjoying um, discovering this little part of um, Aotearoa. It's very, very, uh, in a way, reflective. Well, it used to be. It used. I was struck that too, by that too. It used to be the home of um, people on the DPB. Yes, and because it was very low cost housing. Not so much anymore. They're not. They're no. not going to be living on on Onatangi with next next to Christopher. No, and one of the biggest issues we have on the island is a lack of, as with everywhere else in the country, a lack of um, affordably priced rental housing to the point where the place where I got my hair cut this year, the barber who's built a fantastic business with over 500 clients and who hoped to live on the island and be a barber, eventually had to leave the island because he couldn't find rental accommodation that he could afford. And he's commuting from Mount Roskill to Waiheke every day to cut hair. Uh, uh, we definitely need lots of more affordable housing on this island. And a more affordable ferry, if that's what's going on as well. <laughs> well, that's another part of the issues. So um, on- we, must, we must be careful not to let the hoon just slide into a bloody set of Waiheke anecdotes, though. Uh, yes, yes, thank you. But on the economy, the government made a big, the new government made a big uh, point of saying, you know, we're all about the economy, getting growth going again. We're not going to muck around. We're going to make decisions. We're going to do things. When actually, um, since its election, uh, well, in theory, winning the election in October and then winning government at the end of November, the government has done a bunch of things to slow the economy down. Now, that means uh, freezing a lot of the decision-making around infrastructure, Mm -hmm. around funding for councils, on public transport, on water, on RMA reform. So we're going into a deep freeze lasting six to 12 months on decisions about, you know, where to build new houses, where to build new roads whether or not to put bus routes in. All of these things, everyone's now waiting for government decisions. And uh, the government better get a move on because, as we learned this week, our economy is actually in recession. Not in the uh, technical, um, traditional sense of total GDP uh, going down two quarters in a row, but actually when you look at it in a per capita sense, per capita GDP in New Zealand fell 3% in 2023. That is the fastest and most it's fallen since the global financial crisis. So the government has not only inherited an economy which is in recession, it's frozen decision-making about infrastructure. And it's very interesting today that uh, ANZ, the biggest bank in the country, made the decision to um, forecast rate cuts Mm -hmm. by the Reserve Bank from August, essentially saying the economy is slow so much that the Reserve Bank now has to worry about uh, the economy going into... A harder landing rather than a soft landing. Exactly. And so I think within a few months, the government's going to face some serious questions about, hey, you guys were about bolstering the economy and getting economic growth going, when actually their decisions so far have slowed the economy to a crawl and now it's going backwards. So this is um, uh, a question and a series of questions we we hope that the government gets to answer. Well, no doubt the National Caucus that's meeting this weekend and, and focused on discipline will, you know, there'll be some fantastic stories there about about how to deal with Winston, I'm sure, around the bar. Well, yeah. No, and... Uh, it uh, w- would be good to be a fly on that wall, perhaps. Um, but certainly the political year has now finally started. Uh, it could have started a bit earlier. And um, from this weekend, when there'll be a hui in Narawahia um, to get things going, followed by uh, Parliament and the Cabinet getting going 
the uh, Waitangi Day events, then we can really get back into the political year. Yeah, yeah. I think we should also look at, I mean, apart from you, Bernard, who works throughout, you know, it, it seems to me that the, the, the political reporting um, teams have rather gone away, yeah. um, which I totally understand because they must be knackered. But you know, there were important questions that needed to be answered over this over this last month. I think that's that's something to to think about. Shall we do a quick skateboarding dog, before, which is yes, a good please. one because it's about statistics, and I hope I can present it well enough. Oh, I love a high quality. A high quality. Dog. Let's just yeah, let's just see haiku possibly. So it's <laughs> it's from the Economist, which does excellent skateboarding dogs. It has a slight excess of puns, if you ask me, but it's a piece about um, the British leadership of global statistics. And the idea that they might not have uh, a census this year or next year might abandon their idea of a census. And it talks about the uh, origin of the British statistics industry. And it says, in 1908, Francis Galton, a noted polymath and inventor, but not a noted feminist, created a simple tool to record female attractiveness quickly. About his person, he would carry a piece of paper divided into three and a needle mounted as a pricker. Then when he saw a woman, he would prick holes unseen in the relevant part of the paper, depending on whether she was attractive, indifferent, or repellent. To sort Britain's women by looks, all that was needed was a map, the device, and a bit of a prick. Galton was just the man. I love The Economist. I love The Economist. I've missed you so much, Bernard. I haven't missed you. I've missed our audience so much. It's fantastic to be back. Uh, great to see you again, uh, Peter. And thank you again to all of our viewers and listeners and loyal subscribers uh, to The Kaka. It's been a heck of a summer and we're looking forward to a heck of a 2024. Ka kite everyone, and we'll see you all next week. See you, Bernard. Ka kite. <laughs>